You are listening to the Modern Life Podcast. My name is Tabby, and my returning guest today is Jason Sauer. We are covering the movie Arrival and the short story it was based on. We will be talking about the use of time travel and narratives, our experiences learning foreign languages, and also touch on some of the scientific concepts in the film. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at ModernLifePod and email us at ModernLifePod at gmail.com. You can find Jason on Instagram and Twitter at Jason R. Sauer. And I want to thank him again for being on the show. You told me my wife's dying words. Xiangjun. Found the source of the phone call. It's in the clean room. I'm waiting for instructions. What are you doing? What are you doing? Changing someone's mind. Can you buy me 20 seconds? No, trust me. This buy me 20 right seconds. You trust me. Okay. Do you trust me? Yeah. Got your bags? Drop the phone now or we shoot! Drop it! Yeah, I'm sorry! You are committing an act of treason! Yes. Drop it! It's done. I'm done. Welcome back to the Modern Life Podcast. I have Jason here with me. How are you doing today, Jason? Oh, doing well. You know, I got some extra coffee in me due to our time zone snafu. Uh, so I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty awake. Yes, uh, Arizona does not do daylight savings time, which is the right decision. <laughs> Truly a progressive state uh, <laughs> that rivals California in every way. But Jason, what is your modern thought today? I'm probably like most of the country right now in that I keep thinking about Andrew Cuomo and, and like the pressure for him to step down. Specifically, I'm kind of entranced by his really incredibly awkward and painful advances on people, which are totally inappropriate. But beyond that, also just make it seem like this guy has never actually dated anyone. Wait, um, I don't know anything about this. You have to enlighten me. Oh, man. So you remember like when the correspondence with like Trump or not, I, don't, I think it was actually just Trump reporting on it where he was like asking women if they wanted to go like furniture shopping. And that was like his, no. his pickup line. <laughs> no, oh, I missed no. that. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Yeah. So Trump was just like, yeah, look, you want to go buy a couch with me basically. And that was like his big pickup line. And then, you know, <laughs> women were supposed to like fill in the gaps and like, oh, I guess he wants to sleep with me then you know like it's just that kind of level of bizarre like this was your your sort of come on well Andrew Cuomo is pretty similar to that sort of situation I mean he's a terrible person and so forth and I hope he resigns uh mostly for the the fact that he covered up the like thousands of, of deaths in um nursing homes and then wrote a book about how good he was at uh handling the COVID crisis um, oh I didn't know he wrote a book oh yeah he wrote a book that was published over the summer. Do we know uh, if he actually 
like sat down and wrote it or he got some ghostwriter to I mean this is always the question with right. any politician writing a book I haven't actually looked into whether or not it was like heavily ghost written or anything like that but yeah it was called American Crisis uh leadership lessons uh and <laughs> the COVID-19 funny. Yeah. So what you do when you have a pandemic is you lie about the number of deaths that you have, and then you proceed to try to sleep with several women uh, in your office by saying, uh, I miss hugging people, like really hugging people. And there you go. That's how you beat COVID. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm like glad I missed all that. It's like making me angry. <laughs> uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, again, his his like move is talking to women about missing hugs, and it's like, have you, have you ever spoken to a woman? Like, I don't understand, like, how this ever worked for you, other than just the fact that you've like accumulated power, and like maybe people are vaguely attracted to that. But you know, like, if I was a nobody like me, if I were to talk to a woman about how much I miss hugging, I don't think that would get me very far. No. Uh, <laughs> Well, it works for this guy. <laughs> um, my modern thought is also kind of about politics. Within the last year, 2020, during the election cycle, and then also during the white supremacist riots on the Capitol, I heard this phrase a lot, like in the news, from politicians, from news, and from like educated people that they kept saying, like, America's the greatest democracy, it's under attack. I just kept hearing this greatest democracy phrase over and over again and after a while it kind of like a few warning bells started going off first off because like americans are very um like culturally comfortable with declaring themselves just the the best like that you know that'll always be a little oh, bit of a baby. yeah <laughs> it's always like a little bit of a it's just jarring coming from germany where that kind of language is really looked down upon you know to like put yourself above other countries and then also yeah. another thing that I was like, I don't know if the U.S. is the best, is it's a winner-takes-all democracy, and a country yeah. of this size and population has to be defined. Diversity, yeah. yeah, and diversity has to be defined by either Democrat or Republican, which is just, it's just wild to me, just looking at how many people there are and how geographically how big this country is. And then another reason is the U.S. owns territories where people have little to no voting rights. Uh, yep. Also, gerrymandering and voter suppression exists in this country and the electoral pro um, college process and how votes are counted in, this, in the U.S. has also been brought under scrutiny. So mm -hmm. these are just the things floating around in my head and I try to look it up. <laughs> and the Economist... It's a private UK company. It's called the Economist Intelligence Unit. They come out with a ranking of democracies every oh, year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I will say there's um, criticism because they, there's a lack of transparency as to how they determine these rankings, but it is the only thing I can find. In 2020, the US came in in place 25, number one being Norway and North Korea being at the bottom. So that's still awesome but you're number 25 it's not necessarily the best so yeah my modern thought is just words matter and yeah. i think if you just are blind to all the issues that you face as a democracy there's no way to go up so i don't yeah. know it's just a phrase that i got really tired of 
hearing. I had a couple of thoughts as you were talking about that. So number one, you know, the idea that like Germany would kind of look down upon that sort of language. And like the funny thing is that theoretically, like America does too. We have all this controversy about like touchdown dances and things like that, you know, like hmm. and showboating and sports, which is usually just veiled racism in the United States. But, you know, there's like a lot of white people who are like, act like you've been there before. You know, like none of that. But meanwhile, we're fucking spiking the football. Excuse me. Excuse my language. No, uh, you're fine. The football and uh, <laughs> doing a touchdown dance because we did democracy so well and uh, making sure everyone recognizes it. So it is this like weird sort of controversy. So like what is what does Germany actually say about themselves? Like what does German national pride look like? And honestly, know? I didn't grow up with any sure. of it until... When was the whenever the World Cup was in the in Germany? Oh, yeah. I think it was two thousand six, and just seeing, just seeing flags everywhere was such a new experience, and I think it yeah. kind of reinvigorated that sense of maybe we can be proud of something again, and you don't have to live with shame for like yeah. all of eternity. Um, not yeah. that it's not important to know your own history, but just when I came here, people would say these phrases all the time of like, oh, America's the best country. And like, if you said something like that in Germany, people, I think people would be pretty shocked, at least when I yeah, was growing right. up. So it, it is just a different culture. And I'm not saying that there's necessarily like a nationalistic idealism behind that. I don't think people are trying to be you know, evil or malevolent when they say these kinds of phrases. But um, I think it's still just important to be aware of what you're saying, I guess. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Number 25, though. Uh, also, I, I think that rating is really funny. You know, like how much difference is there between the, the lower tier countries? You know, like North Korea is on the bottom. But what's really the, the fundamental difference between them and whoever is like three spaces above them? Right. <laughs> right. I guess that's part of why... It, there's some criticism as to like how do they determine these you know yeah. these rankings i mean this so. is this is like music ratings you know like <laughs> okay so what's the difference between like a four star to a four and a half star really right. fundamentally <laughs> yeah i i'm always curious i should look up those metrics too as a professional scientist i'm always curious <laughs> about the, the methodology and these sorts of things that is totally legitimate um but i think we are ready to move on to the main yep. topic which is Arrival. I'm just going to give a brief summary. So the movie came out in 2016. It was based on the short story, The Story of Your Life by Ted Chiang. The film, directed by Denis Villeneuve, was a box office success despite its long and arduous journey to get made. The narrative follows accomplished linguist Louise Banks, who is recruited by the American military to establish a form of communication with extraterrestrials who have landed on Earth. There are 12 alien vessels who have appeared all over the globe, forcing different countries to work together to crack the so-called heptapods language and understand their way of perceiving the world. As the days pass by, global unrest and fear of the aliens increases, causing paranoia and a disruption of the intercultural network of researchers and scientists attempting to share their findings with one another. The more familiar Louise becomes with the heptapods, the more she begins to think like them. Their language is nonlinear, and so is their perception of time. Louise starts to get glimpses of her future life, specifically of her daughter, Hannah, who will die of an incurable disease. Louise's proficiency with the heptapod language also enables her to stop the wave of mass hysteria just before the 12 spaceships disappear 
having done their part in imparting their gift of their language to humanity. In the end, Louise decides to have her daughter despite knowing the grief at the end of the journey, trusting that the joy of their limited time together outweighs the inevitable heartbreak. My first question to you is, when I rewatched this again, I was scared of the heptopods. Like, they're always so creepy to me, even though, like, I know they're chill, I know they're friends. And I was wondering, <laughs> when you first watched this, did you have that same reaction of, like, that eeriness? Yeah, for sure. I saw this twice in theaters. Oh, wow. Uh, when it first came out. And then, yeah, I think I saw it on my own and, like, a bunch of friends were going to it. And I was like, yeah, I didn't really get that movie. Or maybe I did. But I just, I don't know, I felt like I was missing something mm. from it. Honestly, I didn't think the film was like that good when I first saw mm -hmm. it. But I was like, everyone loves this thing. It must be me, you know? Uh, <laughs> so I, I went and saw it again. But yeah, no, I they're eerie. I, number one, they're they're not human-like in their structure. They mm -hmm. like emerge through the, the smoky background and the glass or whatever. I would say that the only major difference maybe is that i love cephalopods like squids octopi cuttlefish and things like that so i was very excited to see an alien that didn't just look like a human i always think of like wharf or something from star trek right. i'm like oh it's just like another person but he's got right. like a weird forehead thing. <laughs> um no i i think they did a really good job with like they're kind of menacing but like the menace just comes from the total unknown yeah you know like these are aliens we know nothing about them yeah um they that's... don't seem to be aggressive but they're inscrutable yeah that's funny that you caught on to that because when i looked into this they would we were just discovering all these sea creatures and that's what they base oh. these aliens off of which yeah. i guess i didn't make the connection but you did right away so yeah they are i don't know they i think you're right that there's just something so otherworldly about them and, I mean, that's the whole point of the movie, right? Like, don't judge a book by its cover. You know, we don't know yeah. anything about them, yet people are already starting to be really afraid, which I think that's accurate. Like, that doesn't happen in the short story. I think people are pretty chill, like, talking yeah. to these aliens. But, man, just looking at COVID and other world events, I'm like, people would be losing their shit and, like... <laughs> and I think it's it's very much a reflection of they're they're projecting like our nature onto the aliens you know yes. like why would we go visit another planet it's not because we would just be like generally curious it's because we're hungry for resources so we mm. automatically assume that that's the the motivation for for everything else in the universe or certainly a, a very likely potential motivation because that's the lens through which we view space travel that's interesting that you bring that up because that was an early draft of the script apparently because they had to find a reason for the aliens to be there for the movie which that isn't really a thing in the short story but no. one of the first ideas was that earth is running out of resources and there the aliens are helping them you know find another planet or something like that and the script mm -hmm. writer i guess they rejected that idea because they just really didn't like sending a message out there of like oh we've effed up our own planet like let's go to the next planet and do it all over again so yeah i'm glad they scrapped it yeah i've got plenty of other comments but i'll save it and for no for... go go ahead i you said to me that you thought the short story was so much more kind of like quiet right and not as yeah so okay yeah i mean talking about the specific motivation of the aliens the, the difference between the the book and the movie or the short story in the movie is it's never clear 
what the aliens actually want. They kind of show up and like they're repeatedly asked, what do they want? And they're, they just explain we're here to observe. And then they disappear shortly after the main character develops a, a sort of deeper understanding of the language such that she's starting to kind of unmoor herself from the, the present day a bit. After that happens, they just kind of disappear. And then everyone's just like, what was that about? And it's, it's really unclear. Also, like the, the aliens in the book are a little more puckish in, in a way where like they do interact more with the people. I don't know. They seem to be able to tell that uh, humans are like trying to extract information from them or like, you know, some mm-hmm. sort of glimpse into their advanced reasoning and technology and things like that. Um, because I think they mentioned in the short story that there was a breakthrough where they, the, the aliens finally, the heptapods finally, uh, impart some sort of complicated physics information to people. And then it turns out that it was actually very recently published already in like a journal in, in Japan or something like that, which I thought was really funny. Um, <laughs> because like they finally got something out of them and it's just the aliens, you know, are like doing the, the Google Scholar search uh, <laughs> for like recent articles, and we're like, "Oh yeah, here's something interesting," and then it just it's our own stuff reflected back at us. Like they're totally mm. inscrutable in in the book. I don't know. I thought that was much funnier, and like I don't. They were almost charming in a way mm-hmm. in, in the book that they they weren't really in the in the in the film. Yeah, I uh, I think it's just really hard to make a a film out of that because the tension and the drama is something I really loved in the film, especially the final conflict, which there's none of that in the short story. You know, there's not the evil Chinese general, you know, trying to start a war with the aliens or anything, but I thought that was a really clever thing to come up with for a film because nobody's going to, I mean, this film already, took so long to get made because every time the scriptwriter would try to like pitch it like it's about linguistics like you know people <laughs> you know producers are like is there like lots of gunfire and shooting and like he's like no yeah. so yeah i think they did the you, best they could with trying to make it into a film yeah i don't i don't heavily dislike the film or anything like that i think it was really good for for some of the reasons that you said there and it is really funny thinking you know like this was um a short story published among other short stories mm-hmm. that might have had like higher drama and things like that so you're not like you know it's, you're not being taken for a ride or not expecting to be taken for a ride in the same way that you would sitting down for like a two-hour mm-hmm. film from a large studio or something like that so yeah. i appreciate that they did try to inflect it but I, I still think it's I think it's more charming that just like who knows what they wanted man you know like that was <laughs> <laughs> like she even forgets the language in in the book as well which is very different than what she does in the film where mm. you know in the later parts of it you, she's like writing a whole book on speaking heptopod you know theoretically teaching everyone the language and then I guess theoretically changing everyone's perception of time and, and progress and things like that. But in the book, Louise just forgets it. Uh, she like forgets most of it and kind of goes back to her normal life. She kind of like sometimes speaks it with the other researchers who are speaking it. Mm-hmm. But it's not even like they gave her a lifelong gift or whatever. Right. The, the aliens, the heptopods came. They kind of changed a few people's minds, you know, like maybe a dozen <laughs> or something like that, who, the number that were actually studying the language. And they're like, okay, well, I guess we're going. Thank you. <laughs> um, I think the short story is also written so brilliantly, the way it switches back and forth between 
experiences Louise has in the future with her daughter and her present yeah. work with the aliens. Same as in the movie, there's that moment of the zero-sum game where as yeah. a reader, you're kind of seeing things actually collide. And I thought that was another really great change that worked in the short story, but maybe not in the movie, is the fact that it's a mystery to you who this daughter is, who this child is. Like, you think this has yeah. something that happened in the past. You think Louise is dealing with all this grief. And then you find out later on, like, oh, no, these are glimpses into the future. And I thought that was quite clever to do for the film. I think this is part of the reason why I watched it twice in the first place, was I had I had a really difficult time kind of understanding the film edits. Or, I don't mm. know, like, they just didn't sit as well with me but like after reading the book and seeing it in text i don't know maybe i'm just not a very good visual processor or something like that but you know reading the text then going back and watching the movie the movie was like so much more coherent to me and probably would have been like a very different experience the first time i watched it so i, I really wonder how other people perceive this like if they just had the movie and no other context for it because for me it was like disorienting and I couldn't, I didn't like, I don't know. It, it was very strange, but like going back and watching, I think it was really cool. It is like much more of a mystery where it's just like, why, where are these visions? Like you go through most of the movie, assuming that she's remembering a child that she had in the past before the, the start of the film or before the start of the heptapod events anyway. And so I thought that was like a really good element as well. Like it's a puzzle within a puzzle as you're watching the film because you start getting hints that this might mm -hmm. not be something in the past yeah I, I would agree i think it was like good storytelling especially once i had you know my brain wrapped around it but i even remember even the first time watching it i was like no that that was awesome that was really good yeah that was my experience with it when i first watched it like the when the twist comes of her saying who's this kid it totally worked on me i was like what like i I was getting confused, but I wasn't putting the pieces together, especially when she says like that her husband was a scientist and you see her getting closer to Jeremy Renner. And I'm like, so is, is does she only date scientists? Like, this is weird. Like, yeah, but right. you know, but then you kind of start to figure it out. Uh, another quick comment regarding Jeremy Renner's character or the difference between, oh my gosh, I've totally blanked on his name, but the doctor, I'm sorry, the physicist that Jeremy Renner plays in the film is it Gary or Ian? Yeah. Ian, yeah. I love how in the short story uh, that Ian is kind of insufferable from a linguistic standpoint because he uses the term highly weird or something yeah. to describe, <laughs> you know, which is a disgusting term uh, <laughs> and a complete abuse of the English language. And like she notes it or the author notes it as you know, being something that kind of like sticks in the linguist's mind. And I thought that was kind of a funny thing. Because like in the <laughs> book, I was like, there's no way a linguist is going to end up with someone who says highly weird and thinks, you know, it's like a doctorate of like language ends up dating like a Reddit poster or something like that. Uh, <laughs> it's just like... And then, you know, he ends up being charming enough for her to be like, fine, I'll date a Redditor. That's cool. Uh, <laughs> Talking about the science in the short story, there was mm -hmm. so much hard science in there, which I oh, think yeah. is really, really fun when you have, because I think I do a lot of like science fiction watching and reading that's like just mm -hmm. totally out there. 
and having a lot of actual science kind of worked into the story in a way that could almost seem plausible, especially with the stuff involving time. And like the short story even has like little graphs in there. Of, yeah, you know yeah. how does light travel through water which like if that hadn't been in there i i would have been so lost so i don't know it's just a really smart short story i guess it's really enjoyable at the same time i i don't know if i've mentioned this on the show before but i do have a, a bachelor of science in physics i am not good at physics though that's why i don't do that professionally now so this was like touching on principles that we definitely had discussed over the course of that degree, which at the time, like the math was too difficult or I just wasn't in the right place for it. But I was just like, I gotta go. I cannot do this for the rest of my life. So <laughs> I kind of appreciate some amount of like physics and science in fictional stories because like, I feel like the understanding is kind of advanced, like even beyond what we understood when I was getting my undergrad over oh, a decade interesting. ago now. Wow. Um, and so okay. like, kind of getting the the cultural understanding of physics instead of just like the straight mathematical mm -hmm. sort of understanding. So I really appreciated that. Um, and I went back and actually looked this up. I don't think they really touch on this much in the movie, but it's like a really critical uh, sort of conception of like how the aliens think. Mm -hmm. And I guess it was also majorly influential on um, Ted Chiang's, you know, quick note. Uh, I learned a good chunk of Mandarin because I lived in, in China for a year. And I cannot figure out, I think he would pronounce his name Ted Ted Chiang and not Ted Chiang. And I think it's because of prefacing Ong with Chi kind of changes it to Chiang. But I don't know. Uh, but a major irritating point in the film was referring to... The, the Chinese leader as General Shang, because that sound does not exist in Chinese. It would oh, be General Shang. And I was like, come on, man. Like, there's one Chinese guy, and everyone's <laughs> like, Shang. Uh, and I wanted him to say his own name. He's like, yes, I'm General Shang, or something like that. Because right. I just wanted them to have, you know, I wanted them to, to really be like, oh, no, it's authentically Shang. They would never call <laughs> him that. Sorry. Anyway, so like the I guess the, the basic principle here is, you know, with the light diagrams, it's kind of the discussion of how light travels the most time efficient path, I think is maybe how I would summarize it. So, you know, you can get from point A to point B, you know, even just walking, just thinking about that, you can get from point A to point B by just going in a straight line, or you can do like, you know, like go up a block and then come back down a block or something like that. And then to get to point B, there's infinite pathways mm -hmm. getting to point B. But in all cases, you know, light would choose the, I'm quotations around choose, uh, light would travel the path that is the most efficient. And so they kind of get into the idea of light has to know its destination um, oh, in yes. order to mm -hmm. select its path, which is kind of an old understanding of it you know like choosing or selecting is not really something mm -hmm. that is actually happening and actually the physics are like much more complicated but it was like a useful tool in sort of thinking about or in sort of conceptualizing how like the aliens think and how the language works and things like that so i spent some some time like actually going through the physics in terms of the wikipedia pages to see i'm like okay so obviously it can't choose what is actually happening there and it is too complicated for me to relate in this podcast also <laughs> i probably couldn't do it with any sort of 
real accuracy without some some further work. But that's but. interesting that something like this science fiction short story made you look that up because I had the exact same experience because I used to be kind of into linguistics as like a hobby, uh, you know, nothing mm -hmm. serious. But a lot of the terms used in the short story, I would, you know, look them up like, what does glottographic mean again? Like, what yeah, is a language-based yeah. writing versus an idea-based writing? Because I did learn this all at one point. And actually going back to what you said about Chinese and Mandarin, I saw somebody, I think it was a review online, but somebody mentioned that they thought it was really strange that the Chinese wouldn't have figured out the language first because their language is picked or their writing system is pictorial and conveys ideas instead of conveying the alphabet like English does. That was a really interesting point just in the way that you read because from all the Japanese that I've now forgotten too, like reading in Japanese was so fast because you're not reading yeah. the alphabet. You're just looking at pictures, basically. So reading a sentence in Japanese would take me like half the time than it would reading something in English. And just remembering back to that, I was like, oh, that would make more sense that, you know, those types of cultures maybe figured it out a little bit sooner than Louise. Yeah. Number one, I'm glad you you mentioned that with Japanese because that was my experience too uh, mm. when I was learning it where I was just like, I took it for what, a year and a half in college, I think, and then studied abroad in, in Tokyo at one point. It's weird how your brain really starts reading it like much faster. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like if you say that out loud to someone who doesn't like speak Japanese, it sounds like a weird flex right. that you're doing. Like, right. yeah, I can read Japanese like faster than I can read English. You know, like get out of here. Right. Don't, don't, don't come at <laughs> me with that stuff. Um, but it's true. It's weird. And because of the way like Japanese was written. So my favorite example of this is the symbols used for email, because it's a combination of three that if you read them individually, you would be like, what, what is happening? So email is the combination of the words uh, electric, uh, child, and male. So electric and child together mean electron. And so there's like three ways to read email, basically. There's, uh, there's electric child mail, there's electron mail, and then there's email, you know, like when you combine all three. Mm -hmm. So when you read Japanese, you have to like, pair symbols together in order to like actually understand the meaning and it sounds like that would be a much more difficult process than it actually ends up being mm -hmm. when it when you've reached some degree of fluency and i'd never approached anything like you know total fluency like you really do kind of start flying on that it became so much easier once we started getting into the kanji and i was always yeah. so intimidated by it like oh my god we're gonna learn all these thousands of characters and we only my level we only made it to like 200 characters that's like all i knew but still yeah. already and then there's that weird thing that happens where you might see a character you know exactly what it means but you might not know how to pronounce it because yes. your brain yeah. hasn't made the you know like i know what this means and i can tell you in english but like i don't remember what the sound is for that symbol which is yeah fascinating yeah, which totally wouldn't exist in a, in a language like this, or you know, even yeah. in hiragana or katakana, which are right. entirely like phonetic Alphabets. symbols. Yeah. Um, yeah, 
I mean, the, the, the post that you read about, like, it's strange that, like, China and Japan, or, you know, specifically China, I guess, wouldn't have figured it out sooner. It's funny, because also, when I was watching the movie, I was like, the the weird and sudden aggressive reaction by China to, like, immediately launch into war, I was like, I think in reality, they would be like, oh, no, we got it. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, just like, no, we, we understand the, the language and all that. We figured it out way before way all before. you dumb dumbs. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I just thought that was like a really funny and sort of strange thing. Well, that was um, something that I don't know if it worked or it came across because listening to a bunch of interviews with the screenwriter, I mean, the whole movie is about miscommunication and not understanding yeah. other people. And he wanted it to be like, how do our preconceptions of our cultures on Earth, not even just the aliens, you know, influence how we see them making decisions. So he wanted like Russia and China as this enemy but then when you actually you know when she actually meets the Chinese general he he's a totally you know he's a gentleman he's a nice guy yeah. he's intelligent he's so he wanted to kind of flip those stereotypes and turn them around and I am not entirely certain that that worked all the way though I really appreciate his intent behind it and um, trying to break some of those stereotypes but I feel like especially Russia really still comes off as like a villain in this film. And yeah, I don't know. It's tough because they also balance that with, I, I mean, so, okay, I'll say my initial reaction is, is pretty in line with just like, Oh, come on. Like China immediately right. launches into war, like Russia or whatever, where I, you know, in terms of Hollywood screenwriting, I'm like tropes, uh, right. you know, that, that sort of thing. But they do balance that, you know, the Americans tried to blow them up first and it was like, a small radicalized cell, you know, these like troops who uh, you see in parts of the film, like listening basically to like far right extremist like webcasts. Oh, which uh, is so like, weird that that's literally what just happened. Like how many yeah. of those rioters were like ex-military or... Yeah. That's really scary. <laughs> yeah. They're like listening to it on the, you know, at their post and their superiors are like walking around and presumably like seeing it as well and just being like oh. yeah so i i would say like the the china and russia thing felt like sort of a trope but i thought it was really well done that it was it was definitely america that you know flipped out mm -hmm. first on them and it wasn't even the the higher ups it was just like radicalism within it yeah i mean that doesn't necessarily excuse the the sort of russia or china trope that happened with it but i think it he's not nice or forgiving of like Americans either. There's no yeah. depiction of like, there's no idealistic depiction of, of Americans in this. Like, yes, it should be the, the United States that leads the effort in this sort of communication or whatever. It's just kind of like, Oh no, there was like just the right person who happened to be from the United States. But otherwise, you know, these ding dongs would have <laughs> tried to blow them up and like totally yeah. miss out on the haptopod language. Just another thing that I thought was really clever. That's a difference between the short story, just going back to that and the movie is that Louise doesn't really have a choice in the short story about her daughter you know, it's it's mm -hmm. a pretty preventable rock climbing accident, but she kind of, it, it kind of just all plays out, even though you do see the future. And for the film, they wanted to make it clear that it, it's not like fatalistic, like she can decide not to have Hannah. And she yeah. makes that decision just to have her and spend that, you know, those few years with her. And I thought that was a really 
important and impactful message that the short story obviously didn't need to have. Like, I'm not trying to pack all that into a short story, but I don't know, it worked for me in the film. I wish I had time to like go back and read the short story again before this. There are some key differences, and I this is why I would have gone back and and read that short story to like tease out the specific depth or differences between their conceptions of time between the two. But I I don't know. I kind of thought it was relatively similar because I think like when Louise figures out or starts kind of getting this non-linear vision of time, I think they talk about her like you can see the future and you know, like, do you do anything to effectively change it? Or do you delight in it, appreciate it Mm -hmm. as it's happening? It's tough to figure out what their real take is on determinism, like determinism is like, it's kind of like, well, what if you did know the future? Like, would you really want to rob yourself of all the joy and the experiences Mm -hmm. that you had with like your your daughter, regardless of, of whether or not she dies young? Or for that matter, her experiences with the world. Would you really want to deny her that joy or the world the joy of like having your daughter in it? And so I think like the movie just kind of hinges on, I don't know, I guess they are kind of the same. You know, like it seems to hinge on whether or not she would choose to do that or not. But I would say like the book kind of does it too. And they both are just like, I would rather have my daughter in my life and in the world than not ultimately. Yeah. And it's interesting, like, in the uh, the movie, they really emphasize that Jeremy Renner's character strongly disagrees with that and divorces her, basically, because, like, he can, he's, like, so shocked, theoretically, at the fact that she would go through with that kind of choice, which I guess he feels is unethical or monstrous or, or something like that, enough to, like, break him up. And it even fundamentally changes his relationship with his daughter, like the, uh, the daughter mm-hmm. um, complains that he has left her in spite of the fact that he really hasn't, but it has more to do with like his behavior has changed. Mm-hmm. Which that, yeah. that relationship between Ian and Louise, I think it's such a wonderful romance in the story. Like you're really rooting for them and there's no, there's no like make out kiss in front of the sunset or anything like that. But you know, them just supporting each other and, him stepping in front of her when the guns are pointed at her you like it's a moment of like oh my gosh like these people really are kind of meant for one another and then when that moment comes later that we already know that you know when she kind of like collapses in his arms and it's like oh i know why my husband left me and he's like oh you had a husband and she's talking about him you also kind of can see why he would make that decision like there's, yeah. you know, you kind of feel so heartbroken for them. Yet it's another one of those choices where she's like, "My time with this person is valuable enough that, yeah, you know, I will take the heartbreak that follows." So I thought the movie yeah. juggled that really well tonally. I yeah, I, I think their their romance is really beautiful. I was thinking though, I'm like, okay, so you know, if I if I was Jeremy Renner in the situation and somebody knew the kid that we were about to have, like if we have a kid, they're going to like die young or something like that. Would I be mad that I wasn't told like this person has privileged information about the, the ultimate fate of a kid. Like, would I be really upset if they hadn't told me? And I'd be like, I would certainly be shocked. And I don't know. I think I I would be upset because you don't have that knowledge. You don't have those visions. You have nothing to to compare to all this wonderful time that you get to have with this kid. Like if, 
you know, if ahead of yeah. time you would have been told, you you probably would have said, oh, well, then let's not have a kid. Yeah. You know, but she already knows what's coming. So I feel like that's maybe why she doesn't tell him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I understand why she hasn't told him. But I was mm -hmm. like, would I be, would I divorce my wife, you right. know, or my partner or whatever, if I was the person in that situation? And, you know, it would be really shocking, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, even beyond whether or not you still fundamentally like the person, I don't know. I, I can just see myself being like, I got to step out of this. Like, I, yeah. you know, <laughs> like I'm consumed with thoughts about this suddenly. Yeah, yeah. that's a really good yeah. point. Yeah. And like they, they seem to have like a good relationship otherwise, you know, even like past the divorce. She's, you know, she's not even mad at him, really. She's just kind of like, oh, yeah, no, I, I, I accept that. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to the Chinese really quickly because yeah. when Colonel Weber hands the phone to Louise and is like, do you speak Chinese? Like, I, I feel like they just take it for granted that she would just on the fact that she's a linguist. And I feel like yeah. every linguist watching is like, that linguist is not a polyglot. Like, you know, yeah, right. so I was wondering, what did you think of her Chinese at the end? Because I've heard that it sounds like somebody who's just rehearsing a line. It doesn't sound very authentic, but I don't know. So I would say that I have to compare this. I, I think the standard for bad Chinese in all film, for me personally, was... I guess it wasn't even film. It was on the, the Daredevil series, um, you know, from the Marvel Comic Universe that was on Netflix. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they had this one... Uh, older Chinese woman who I guess was you know doing something. Oh my uh, god! You know, was Wait, and wasn't Kingpin like trying to speak Chinese? Yes, I yes. think I saw that episode. Yeah, the the Chinese actor definitely speaks Chinese. Right, um, <laughs> Kingpin and the actor who speaks Chinese back to her, you know, to kind of flex, like you know, I actually know what you've been saying the entire time. I'm not you know as ignorant as you thought. His Chinese is so bad. <sighs> Uh, and I'm like, did you not get any lessons whatsoever? You didn't like get the, the Duolingo for Chinese pronunciation <laughs> or anything. I don't think it's just part of the scene, but he looks so uncomfortable, like speaking it to her. Like this is his moment of like revelation. And he's just like, you know, imagine like a middle schooler trying to say like, uh, I like the dog or something right, like that right. and just like butchering it. That was his level of like bad Chinese. Um, I would say Amy Adams really gave it a go. Oh, that's um, good. <laughs> I, I would say, sure, maybe it, it sounds like she got coached on it or whatever, but I was like, it's not perfect, but she's attempting tones, and she has a lot of the, the good pronunciation um, that would be lacking from someone who's just like, I read the page, you know, like, right. I, I know what right. the lines are. It would have been nice to have someone who was like more fluent or whatever, and I'm sure it was very distracting for someone who is of uh, like who speaks Mandarin. Right. But for me, I was like, no, oh, that's that's not bad. <laughs> it's so, worse out there. It could have been Kingpin. It's so funny in those scenes. Like I remember that scene because the the sounds coming out of his mouth didn't sound like the Chinese Anything. language, <laughs> and I I hear that so often with like. I mean, obviously German, but even when actors are like speaking Russian and I'm like, I don't speak Russian, but whatever came out of your mouth, like did not sound <laughs> Russian. And then I always put myself in like the shoes of the other actor 
who's like a native speaker and then has to pretend like, oh, like I am so impressed right now. Like, oh, you you showed me. <laughs> like, yeah, right. It's just always funny. <laughs> no, I, I was like, they don't even show. Uh, so in, in Daredevil, when Kingpin is speaking Chinese, I don't think they even show the, the Chinese actor's face in the same scene maybe she couldn't um, just she couldn't do it she's like i, I can't and i was like i'm sure he was just like profusely apologetic but just like look i am so sorry for what's about to happen or whatever but yeah it's so funny thinking about like being that other actor right and being like yes we are carrying a competent conversation right now i'm not just queuing up you know my my speech based on when you've stopped talking right, or, right. You know. <laughs> Oh, that's so true. I also really love the decision not to subtitle the Chinese. So apparently this was kind of a point of frustration for the screenwriter because yeah. in the script it just said like she speaks in Chinese and then they call him up and it's like, they're like, oh, we have the person here who's going to teach, you know, the actress Chinese, like we need to know what it says. And then the script writer came up with that line of, you know, war doesn't have winners, only widows. And yeah. he's like, I came up with that. And now you you didn't even subtitle it. Like, nobody knows what I came up with. But then in the yeah. interview, he was like, but it was in the end the right choice because what she's saying really isn't important. It's not yeah. relevant to the film. And I don't think I would have done that. I think I would have just subtitled it, not thinking about it. And I thought it was a really great decision not to do that. That isn't That does change, you know, the sort of conception about it. And yeah, because I mean, like, you know that, so she calls the Chinese general, uh, General Shang. <laughs> Ugh. Uh, and I mean, it even sounds incredibly English saying it like, we, that long A just doesn't, anyway. Um, <laughs> she's calling him and reciting to him the words of his dead wife, the last things that she told him. So, I mean, it really is more about like, you know what's happening in the conversation. I guess it wouldn't necessarily be critical to know that sort of language. That is an interesting point, and I guess it makes sense in terms of the decision. I, I would say, though, that, like, after that point where she's at the, the party in the future, after he explains that and tells her the words that his dead wife uh, or his dying wife spoke to him, he continues speaking Chinese afterward, and all he's saying is just thank you, thank you. Uh, he's going shush shush shush, mm -hmm. and um, that's all I caught. I'm like, I know, yeah. I know what thank you is. <laughs> Go me. Yeah, but they they still caption it, so they don't caption it at all in the film. But like, I had the subtitles on, oh. and it just says speaking Chinese. Uh, oh, <laughs> and just like, interesting. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> he's just saying thank you. It's not even <laughs> unintelligible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the linguist thing is uh, a funny point as well. We're just like, oh yeah, no, she probably speaks Chinese. She loves language. Um, right, right. It's like that's not and, how that works. You know, when in reality, it's like calling up a historian who wrote a book about the Napoleonic Wars or something, and be like, what do you have on um, Russia under right. uh, Tsar Nicholas? And it's <laughs> like, I mean, you know, like a bit. Uh, kind of more focused on this other thing. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that might not have been a very good comparison in my head. I was like, shoot, did Tsar Nicholas overlap with Napoleon? I don't know. I'm not a historian, man. <laughs> well, the other thing about language in the movie is that quote that they have where Ian is reading from her 
paper or her book and it says language is the first weapon drawn in a conflict it, mm-hmm. that is a great line like yeah it's just so fantastic like it's so true and also it kind of shows how he's a little bit prickly because then he's like well you're wrong about that you know like it shows his personality through trying to kind of be a little bit arrogant but it's a great place to put your characters especially because yeah. they're in this helicopter I don't know if she's ever been in a helicopter. She doesn't know what the headphones are. Like, this dude is just, you know, ranting at her about her book and her ability to still be calm through all that and kind of go along with the flow is is part of what makes her a really great character, I think. Yeah. And that, that, that was a really good line. Those moments where, or like Amy Adams is like slowly kind of asserting herself and kind of establishing like, no, mm-hmm. the work I do is actually like completely critical to all of this, you know, mm-hmm. like just as much as all this military preparation, more than the military preparation, because you're projecting things in the first place without really understanding intents or, or establishing any sort of communication. Yeah, that's like one of the, the many good character moments where this person who has, you know, she's like lowest on the totem pole, mm-hmm. you know, they're just like, we just need to be able to make a phone call which is a very basic sort of thing to do. And she's like, number one, it's really complicated to be able to communicate. And number two, like, this actually takes precedence over all of your stuff. And like Jeremy Renner tries to, or his character rather, Ian, tries to pull the sly line of like, actually, the universal form of communication is science. Uh, And I was like, that's kind of preposterous, even among physicists, probably. (laughs) Like, I'm sure there's some people who would think, you know, like we launched equations, I forget which ones we, we you know, engraved on the golden disc or whatever that we sent with the Voyager. So there's like some conception of like, well, we may not have common languages, but we probably have common mathematical conceptions or things like that. So to kind of like prove that there's intelligent life, we will demonstrate this like basic like principle in physics in a language that is probably easy to decipher by any other civilization that Mm. has sort of a a language but even then it it presumes that the other civilization is capable of language logically you should already be kind of elevating language above other things and not assuming it's actually math but whatever jeremy renner's character is a douchebag in the book and um (laughs) he's kind of a a douchebag in the in the film too in other interesting ways but in the book he's he gets more like humbled over time where he's like like he's trying to learn heptapod and then Mm. later on admits like yeah i've totally given up on that that's way too complicated (laughs) but i think also in the film like the second thing he does is like throw up in a garbage can you know, and there's yeah, a he's there, the one who vomits. Yeah, yeah. The, there could have been a version of this film where he's just like the manly man, you know, throughout, like the action yeah. hero, blah blah. You know, so yeah, I like that they didn't go with that. I had a question about the room that they came up with for the aliens, which I think is oh. cool for a film. You know, because the, in the short story, the aliens are not actually on Earth; they're just like communicating through them through radio or whatever but then they had constructed this whole room where they have to jump up but then it goes sideways and they're in this like you said smoking room with the aliens and when they first get in there somebody looks on their watch or radio or something and and it's getting all scrambled and no signal is going through but then later on they're like recording everything and communicating with the people 
like in the tents further away and somebody even says like oh are you getting us and the person you know operating the radio is like yes i'm recording all this it's uploading to base camp blah 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 so was that something the aliens just disabled the first time they were there or are there like different this is like a totally random like <laughs> doesn't have anything to do with the plot but i was just confused as to when they were in that room and when they were cut off from other communication when they were not i don't know yeah i i think i totally missed any sort of complications with that <laughs> i mean that whole room is just like it's it's strange in general i think they they do a lot to kind of add to the disorienting effect of it that wasn't really there in the book right um, did that work for you did you like how kind of like weird it was and like um i did i really liked their presentation of the aliens and like you know behind the the glass with all the smoke in it and mm -hmm. things like that i thought that was really well done in terms of like just kind of adding to i mean they have to stand at a distance too um because they you know they don't know anything about like the levels of radiation mm -hmm. that are in there like everything is potentially dangerous to them and like even the gravity is like different in there and they have to like physically reorient themselves to even like go see them in the first place so i generally thought like that added to the real foreboding sort of mm. sense or just like the spookiness of all of it and also the fact that she takes off her suit it's like a big yeah. moment i remember especially the first time i watched it like you're kind of like what is she doing and that you wouldn't have had that maybe without the weird room and yeah. setting the you know stage for it i guess the they don't really establish that they figured out like levels of oxygen or you know even brought like a geiger counter to figure out radiation in there or things like that which oh, I thought really was... i think they only have that little bird in there in the cage right yeah but how much the, does the that tell you yeah i don't know but i guess presumably if the bird can live and breathe then you know i guess i could take my cue from that and be like it's probably mm -hmm. safe for a human the bird's mm -hmm. fine yeah, but I totally forgot about the, the radio communication. It's not important at all. I don't know why it just confused me. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, I would be amazed. I'm, I barely get service in my apartment, <laughs> which is not, um, yeah. you know, not whatever advanced material uh, <laughs> that the aliens are using. I just assume you wouldn't have communication except with, like, maybe someone who's standing directly down the chute or something. But right. I don't know. Who knows? I also, another character moment that I really loved for Louise is when she tells the story of the kangaroos in yeah. Australia. Mm -hmm. So she says that kangaroo stands for like, what are you saying? Or it, it's a story about miscommunication between the colonizers and the people who lived in mm -hmm. Australia. And it's it's not a true story. And then, but that's kind of like how she gets her point across and gets her power in the situation and then turns to Ian after Colonel Weber leaves and is like, yeah, I'm, it's not true. Like, that's made yeah. up. But just the fact that she's willing to do that or say anything, it makes us root for her in that moment. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's totally powerless at the start. And yeah. then, you know, that's one of her, her many subtle flexes in terms of like, oh, no, like, what I'm doing is actually completely critical to this process. Yeah. And it's taken for granted but obviously communication is like the absolute necessity 
I mean, that also has obvious ties to like thinking about colonialism and, and human mm, yeah. reaction and like human use of language. Like we're we're trying to learn what all this stuff is ultimately so that we can control it and bring it under our purview and extract whatever the beneficial resources are. So I thought that was like a really smart tie in to the colonialist history of, of language acquisition and, and things like that yeah. as well. That's a really um, good point. I had a question for you because you speak a little bit of a few languages. and I've never mm -hmm. heard, you know, linguistic relativity talked about in the movie, but they do in this film where they talk about the Sapir-Whorf theory and how yeah. the language you speak determines how you see the world. And also if a language doesn't have a word for a certain concept, you won't notice it as easily as when you're speaking a language that does have a word for it. I think it's generally widely accepted. I don't know who would kind of go against it because I've had that experience and every person to whom I've spoken who speaks multiple languages agrees with that sentiment. And so to kind of use an actual scientific theory to explain how she could see the future, it, I think it's brilliant. And it's another one of those like hard science things that that works really well. Have you experienced yeah. that at all? That you're like, oh, there's a word for it in this language, and now I'm kind of more aware of whatever the phrase is or the concept. Or it takes a long time, or it can take a really long time. It's not simply like what they're kind of describing here is not just like, oh, we don't have a word that distinguishes like raccoons from squirrels or something like that. To us, they're all the same. You know, like it's it's not something as dramatic as that but yeah like you have to become relatively fluent in a language to really understand like the the feeling underneath it is distinct from whatever mm. you would expect just based on the dictionary definition of a given word mm -hmm. and i think german you know always gets credited with having like words for like hyper specific words for things that we don't have words for in English like schadenfreude is like the the classic pardon me for for mm -hmm. butchering that if I mess up the pronunciation but we don't have a word for that in in English it's interesting because like the feeling exists in English but you can't like pin a label on it. it that's kind of a case where the language just slaps a label on something that exists across languages mm -hmm. but you're kind of describing something more along the lines of you can't even really begin to you can't conceive of things in the same way that people in other cultures do because the the language informs the thinking and therefore, you know, there's access to different modes. Yeah, of, I don't know of, if I, because I think that's considered like the strong version of the theory. That's something mm -hmm. like if you've read 1984, like the new speak, the language that yeah. they invent in it to stop people from thinking of words like freedom and stuff like that. It It's a cool concept, again, especially for like a book or a dystopian you know, whatever. But I think that might work if human thinking was language based only, but it's not yeah. like we see, we think in feelings and pictures. And so language does inform part of that. And the words we use inform part of that, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's across the board, like, no, you can't think of some, you know, unless you have a word for it. I guess kind of an analog to that. Have you ever listened to the, the radio lab episode about colors? I think so. Where they go into the, the invention of blue. Blue as a concept for colors didn't really exist until the relatively recent past in text. Previously, we kind of thought that 
authors were just being like colorful or metaphorical with language mm-hmm. when they're describing like a, a yellow sea or, or mm-hmm. pink skies yes. and, no, and things I like have that. With, to that. Yeah. Um, but it turns out that blue just didn't exist across any text until a relatively concise period of time. And then after that, it, you know, it appears everywhere. So questions about whether or not we saw blue previously or if we were just putting a name on something that we all kind of noticed was about it but you Mm. know having a word for it really solidified it but i I don't know if it's in that episode or if they go further into it and like an additional web video they have for it but there's this part where they talk about conceptions of color that differ among cultures there's a tribe at least somewhere in africa and i apologize for for not knowing the specific location it's been a while that like separates or categorizes colors more into like dark and light Mm -hmm. as opposed to whatever it is that we use to, to categorize colors that allows them to notice difference in colors that we don't by we i mean like western united Mm -hmm. states uh, maybe british as well so i don't know i think there's there's maybe something to it, maybe not in the strongest form, mm-hmm. but I would agree that language and you know the way we communicate things definitely places limits on on what we're able to to perceive yeah. and, and conceive of. The color um, thing is is really interesting, especially because we have some, we still have some remnants of that nowadays because we call red redheaded people their their hair is kind of orange. But people had that color hair before we used the word orange to describe the color and not just the fruit. Because it's like a more recent addition to our color vocabulary, we're still stuck with calling, we're calling them, you know, redheaded, not orange-headed. Right, yeah. Yeah, colors are really fascinating. I think about that episode all the time. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) I know the one you're talking about. But yeah, I mean, the, the Saper Warp thing is is really similar. And there are definitely moments where, like with Spanish in particular, because I lived and worked in Chile for like a year and a half and really nose to the grindstone on, on the language, where there were these kind of like emergent sort of like understandings of like, oh, that's, that's what they mean by this mm. word. Like the dictionary definition is this, but totally different underlying sentiment for, for what they're really getting yeah. at. This is a, this is like off topic now, but just that getting the feel for a language. One example that I found kind of difficult at first with learning English is like, why is when something's shit, it's bad. But when something is the shit, it's good. Yeah. Like, right. you know, like what's the difference there? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in high school, we had a, a Spanish exchange student who he was from Spain. I don't remember which part. And we thought it was the funniest thing that there was no verb for to rock in Spanish. Uh, and we're like, how could you possibly understand what it is to rock you like a hurricane? You know, like, yeah. you have this totally missed experience uh, that is essential <laughs> to being an American. Um, <laughs> Without that word. That's so funny and also so true. <laughs> Obviously, he was just deeply annoyed. Like, he understands what rock was, but... uh. <laughs> anyway, yeah, you kind of touched on a, some of the last points I had here. Like, the fact that these Americans keep saying over and over, like, these aliens are being aggressive to us, yet they're the ones going in there with, like, bombs while the aliens yeah. are just, like, chilling. And I'm like, yeah, that's totally 
how it would go down and like the one person, the ordinary person who kind of saves the world through being intelligent and kind. Like that I can see that being the anomaly of Louise. Yeah, Banks. and cautious is I guess the other thing. I cautious in a different way. Cautious in a generous way. You know, just like I'm not going to immediately attribute malign or like not malign but malicious intent mm -hmm. uh on your actions i guess i had one question did you ever read slaughterhouse five by no. Vonnegut? like that's a clear inspiration for a lot of this there's an alien race in slaughterhouse five called the tralfamagorians who view uh time in the same sort of way like they they can mm. look at how things are over time is that they're looking at a painting they can see the right and the left side of a painting at the same time which is you know the beginning and the end of their life or whatever i i thought back to that story you know with just this sort of conception of time and i'm certain it's got to be a huge influence on this uh on this story kurt vonnegut was like maybe the first author who like as an adult i really liked you know i've, I've read plenty mm authors like through school and through classes or whatever but Kurt Vonnegut was like the first person I really pursued his writing as a matter of enjoyment as an adult because I felt like I was really getting stuff out of it he gets criticized as being you know like a, a relatively plain author um and you know I think if I was like a a high-minded writer or appreciator of literature I could understand where those criticisms are but he's you know he's got some interesting thoughts and he's a really kind and, and generous person too in his writing I'll have to check I, him out. I, yeah, I haven't read anything by him. Yeah, Slaughterhouse-Five is great. I'll have to find one of his other ones. Yeah, he, also, you, he wrote really beautifully about time, too. Let me ask you about that, because I think the concept of time and time travel, it, it comes up a lot in science fiction and I think also even fantasy. And it's one of those tropes that really, really annoys me. Like, even in this film, I'm like, well, how could he have known that he had to show yeah. her the phone number and then this and then that? I think this movie's just so clever altogether that I overlook all that. But I'll watch something like, like when people were really into Doctor Who, and my friends yeah. were like, "You, we're going to show you all the good episodes," and I like hated all of them because it's just like people running around, and every time I'd be like, "Wait, this whole plot doesn't make any sense." The Doctor would like turn to the camera and be like timey warbles it makes sense yeah. now and i'm like you can't just say that and then it, your <laughs> your writing like works out you know like that's why i feel like when you're not going about it in a smart way i think writers often use like time travel e even in harry potter with the whole hermione saying i'm like that doesn't make sense like i don't know it'll pull me out of the plot yeah i, I don't know there, there's so many like physics things in general where i'm just like whatever you know oh, i like, bet but it's, <laughs> yeah. it's weird there's like it, it's strange where like personal taste comes in where you're just like this is a tasteless use of time travel right this is a tasteful use of time travel right. or something like that <laughs> yeah and i'm i don't know i feel like i'm just an insufferable pretentious piece of shit about most things so i have to accept that maybe i'm the the issue uh in terms of like i can't deal with that that's some that's an awful use of time travel. I have a degree in geology, so like I look at a lot of movie sets, and I'm like, "What is going on with that?" You know, like uh, <laughs> I think it was the um, the Hobbit trilogy. I watched the first one. Oh my god! And, like, tell me everything. That, it was and number one. It's a bad film in general. But number two, um, I remember like looking at the sets where I'm like, "What are these rocks? Like, what is this supposed to be?" And then I was just like, "All right, it's me." You know, like who? 
who is really coming into a film and being like, sediment doesn't look like that. What do you, <laughs> it would never layer in that way. Like, are these volcanics or are these, you know, just insufferable? The only good use of time travel was in Star Trek Four, where they go back in time to save the whales. Um, also <laughs> involving language, because the aliens speak whale, and all whales have gone extinct by uh, the time of Star Trek's future. So they have to go back to like the early 1980s or something like oh, that yeah. and go pinch a whale from yeah, I barely an aquarium remember that. or a zoo or yeah. something. Well, but that was like a big hot button topic back in the day, like when we yeah. were growing up, like save the whales, the whales are going extinct. Yeah, they're still not doing great, but yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> but did you have anything else, any last thoughts on this film? No, I mean, I thought the the film was good. I would definitely recommend reading the short story. It's like, what, 60 pages or it's something? It's so quick, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's a quick read. And I think seeing the film, I expected it to be much longer, but it was fast and it was really touching. Yeah. And this is just me, though. I, I spent more time thinking about the text than I did the film, but I think the film does a really good job. Something, just because you just said it about how touching it is, just because you just used that word, um, I think the author and also the film, they do a really good job of putting in the science, putting in the story, you know, the science fiction stuff, but not losing the humanity and the only recent other hard science thing I read is um, The Martian. I haven't seen the film, yeah. but it's about this guy who gets stuck on Mars and he's, you know, figuring it out. And especially reading that book during COVID and having that dude experience like no loneliness, <laughs> like he's yeah. chill, like he can just be on Mars without doing anything like in his little tent. It was really jarring and it was like watching like a robot that got put yeah. in you know the author was focusing so on the science and not on making like an actual character and i felt like this this movie or this short story never lost track of that yeah i i would say that was my i never actually saw the movie for the martian but i read the book and that was my general criticism of the book as well where i'm like there's no humanity in yeah. a lot of this yeah this is like a perfectly efficient machine right trying to figure out how to you know, and he like makes mistakes and stuff like that. But otherwise, it's just an engineer writing um, yes. <laughs> a, a story yes. about what it would be like if things went wrong on Mars. Yeah, it totally loses that sort of reality of like being a person. Yeah, I actually had two roommates when I was living in Colorado who worked on uh, space shuttle missions. Um, they were getting their PhD and like figuring out like how do we send humans up there and things like that. So one of them brought home these strawberries that they had cultivated that were theoretically, oh, sorry, a strawberry plant um, with these like little tiny strawberries that were really tough. That was a plant that they were thinking about potentially sending on like a, a Mars mission mm. that, you know, has no intent to come home. And so they're really water efficient, but there's a lot of psychological elements to that too. Like, because you're stuck in a space shuttle and then you're stuck on Mars there's no greenery whatsoever. And so like the plants are critical both for like providing your food, but there's a lot of psychological assistance that that provides as well. I mean, like there's stories of, of people in, who work in Antarctica who basically go insane. It's really common. Yeah. Uh, and that's because there's nothing to look out on. You're stuck in this base that looks like it's, you know, like a Martian base or something. There's no plants to look out on. And so it really messes with your 
with your mind. And yeah, so I think the the Martian really missed that where I'm yeah. like, I would be going insane in like a week, <laughs> like pretty quickly. Sorry, you, this is a long tangent. No, you kind of um, um, participated um, or anticipated what I was going to ask you because you did a really good callback back to our episode just now for Encounters at the End of the World. And then yeah. I was actually going to ask you about the last one we did was Dune because this color palette that Denis Villeneuve uses in this film, it's not one of my favorites, you know, the dark Everybody is kind of gray looking. Yeah. It works so well for this film. There's some fantastic shots of just like mist rolling over the mountains. And yeah. I don't yeah. miss the color at all. But I think we were just looking at the recent Dune trailer. And it looks just as dark and black and colorless as... And that was our criticism of the original film. Especially when yeah. they're on that like green planet. And I'm like, man, like I, I've only seen the trailer, but I hope he doesn't get stuck with this color palette for something as, you know, wild as Dune. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I live in the desert, and it's beautiful. Sure, there is that dark color palette, but, I mean, the, the critical feature of the desert is that the sun is always out. So there's there's a lot of light to really bring out some subtle shades and, and things like that. Mm. Yeah, the color palette and arrival, I think, really worked very well for it. Yeah. Um, and it's such like a murky process of just like, what the heck are these aliens? What do they want? And kind of adds to the, the sort of unease of it. But I really appreciated that sort of take on like space and stuff like that. Like even the aliens didn't use colors, you know, like it's gray mm. and like gunmetal gray. Mm. Like those are the two colors that they used in their, their ship. In the book, they have eight eyes. Who knows what colors they can see, but oh, we were just true. left with like, yeah. anyway. That's it. I think we're done, right? Yeah. All righty. Jason, do you want to tell the people where they can find you online at all? Like on Instagram um, or yeah, Twitter? Yeah, so we're still doing the Future Cities podcast mm -hmm. uh, over at like Future Cities Pod, which is on Stitcher. It's on iTunes. Um, I think it's on Spotify, too. I forget all the places. Uh, I haven't done an episode in a while, but there's plenty of um, great collaborators who are on there and talking about the current state and future of um, making cities livable uh, and resilient to changes in climate change and extreme weather events and things like that. And other than that, please hire me. I'm graduating in uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe in late July, early August, and I need a job. So a lot of me. science companies are going to be listening to this podcast, of course. Oh, uh, <laughs> a lot of engineering firms. That's great. Good, good to know. <laughs> That's your key audience. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jason R. Sauer. That's S-A-U-E-R. And then same for, for Instagram. If you need more doggos uh, in your life, I've got one. He's very handsome. <laughs> right on. Thank you so much for another episode. Thank you. I used to think this was the beginning of your story. Memory is a strange thing. It doesn't work like I thought it did. We are so bound by time, by its order. <laughs>